Welcome to Behind the Wings, a new podcast by Wings Over the Rockies Air and Space Museum, and we've got a lot to explore. Stories about how history shapes aviation today, trailblazers in space, and up-close looks at iconic aircraft of the past, present, and future. Yep, it's time to go Behind the Wings. Hi friends, I'm your host Rick Crandall, and with me is Wings Over the Rockies President and CEO John Barry. All right, John, tee it up. What do we have for folks today? Well, today's show is a conversation with Jonna Doolittle, the granddaughter of General Jimmy Doolittle, who gives us great insights into the American military general and aviation pioneer. Now, Jimmy Doolittle was one of the great aviation pioneers of the 1920s and 30s. He won air races, was a test pilot, completing the first outside loop, something most people thought was impossible. He also lobbied successfully to make the Air Force his own branch of the military. This is going to be a really fun conversation. You are absolutely right, sir, and let's get started. John Doolittle, welcome to the show. Thank you, it's good to join you and really good to see John again. <laughs> yeah, I, I say that every time I see him too, just to, <laughs> just to soften him up a little bit. So, so Jonna, before we get into all the, the, the storied history, I'm just curious, what is your earliest recollection of your grandfather? When, when, can you think back to when, gosh, this guy might be pretty special? Well, you know, as a little kid, he would play with us. And he always had a little bit of an honorary side. So if we got into something we weren't supposed to get into or, or did something that made my grandmother raise her eyebrow. It was always Lefty and Shorty who did it. So my earliest memories are playing. And, and it's kind of crazy because decades later, those are the memories that my daughters have of their great-grandfather, of him playing with them. It's amazing when you have that uh, kind of person in your family. But, you know, he was born in 1890. Six. six was it, John? Ninety-six. And uh, lived to be uh, really ninety-three years. Uh, and you had an opportunity to really get to know the man, uh, not only the grandfather but also the legacy. So uh, let's start from the beginning. You know, um, you know, it's interesting. He's a bit of a character <laughs> in the early years. You know, when you think about it, I uh, grew up in Nome, Alaska. I guess his father. Your great-grandfather was chasing gold up there, is that correct? He was. He was actually a carpenter, and he would go up there and, and practice his trade, but grub stake people. Uh, never made it rich, never never hit the gold, but uh, was a, a real rough-and-tumble guy. Well, what a way to grow up. And also, you know, you know I was always uh, curious, uh, how tall was General Doolittle? Because he was a boxer in those days when he was young. He was five foot six. That's amazing, you know, when you think about it, uh, being that short and still being able to do that. And uh, I guess uh, one of the things was he got the flying bug early and uh, was able to be able to get enlisted there. And oh, early on in, uh, was it uh, 1917? And then he was commissioned as an officer after he got his degree in 1918. So tell us a little bit about what you remember him telling you about those early years when he was a first into the Army Air Corps. Well, his love of flying really came in, in 1910 with the Dominguez Air Show and coming out to the show and, and seeing those amazing flying machines. He actually built his first airplane based on a popular mechanics uh, diagram, <laughs> uh, crashed it twice, and then luckily the wind took care of the rest of it. So I ended up having a grandfather. 
Uh, he was actually in school. He was at the University of California uh, studying engineering, mining engineering, had just completed his junior year of, of college when the world, world War I started, the United States became involved. He dropped out of school and enlisted in the Army Signal Corps as a flying cadet, uh, stayed up in Berkeley until he finishes his ground school and then headed down to Los Angeles for, the, um, for his flight training. Now, he was super disappointed because he was not uh, one of those guys that went over and flew in Europe. He was kept in California as a flight instructor, and I actually think that's, that played a key role in the pilot he became. You know, when you talk about the Army Signal Corps and uh, and his role in early aviation, you know, it's kind of interesting that he was on the forefront of that right from the beginning. And, uh, yeah, he didn't get to go to combat in World War One, but he really developed his flying skills as an instructor and, and moved on from there. But, uh, Rick, uh, you got any questions uh, for John about yeah, that? Yeah, and, and I'm thinking, I know, you know back in World War One, there was a lot of, uh, you know, aerial observation flying going on you mentioned signal corps and you just when he came when he came to the end of world war one not having gone overseas but what was he what was he motivated by at that point what was it you know i, I mean he's got that sense he didn't actually get to go fly and fight but but what was driving him at that point well a couple things uh, one of the things is you know he was very handy he, uh, he could build almost anything. He was given the opportunity to go to mechanic school, and he loved tinkering with, with the airplane. And from there, he was then sent by the um, Army Air Corps to um, engineering school. Now, back in those days, you had pilots who were a little crazy, and you had engineers who were pretty straight-laced. He was one of the first people to begin to marry those two fields together. As a pilot, he knew what he wanted an airplane to do. As an engineer, he then could figure out how to, how to make that happen. And those engaged the two sides of, of his personality. Based on those two years of schooling, um, I, I will throw in there, they did put parachute in, and I, I'm really glad that they put that parachute school in there because he uh, it did save his life. But uh, based on those two years of schooling, the University of California gave him a bachelor's of science, and then he was given two years to earn his um, master's at MIT. In one year, he earned his master's uh, of science in aeronautical engineering. The second year, he earned his PhD in um, science in aeronautical engineering. That drove him throughout his whole life. He wanted to make aviation better. And as you watch his career, those two pieces, not only love for his country, but love of aviation is what drove him. And we, you know, you get that, uh, that drive to be as smart as he could be, you know, to be as educated, to learn as much as he could, apply it to the planes. But then at the same time, he's mastering his craft as an aviator and you know, we, we hear stories of the of the loop, right? The the, the yeah, first outside loop. And I was trying to imagine that. I've, I've not had as much time in the air as John. I have had an opportunity to be 
in a plane doing loops and, and not the outside loop. And I've been all day long, I've been thinking about the difference between the inside and the outside. And to be the first guy to do that, as if I didn't have enough admiration for Jimmy Doolittle already, that's pretty cool. He was labeled as this daredevil who would do anything. But I think the outside loop really good example of, of how he was uh, the master of the calculated risk. Um, he had, was recovering from a couple of broken ankles uh, that he, that he uh, broke them down in, in uh, Santiago. But when he came back, he had about six months of rehab. And during that rehab, he started thinking about the outside loop and what it could do. Now, when he was a kid in, in Gnome, he did a lot of gymnastics. And he was very familiar with what happens to the body in gymnastics. He applied that to aviation with all of the uh, aerobatics that he did. So he had that advantage of, of knowing how to do things as a gymnast. But on the flip side, his master's was on the radiant stress on, on an airplane. He understood what would happen to an airplane. And he would test that. He would push the loop further and further, land, take a look at that airplane to make sure that there was the, the, it could withhold the stress. Then he did it for himself a number of times before he ever did it for friends and way before he ever did it for the press. So the daredevil, yeah, it was there, but it was calculated. There was a little daredevil in the wing walking, though, right? Oh, yeah. That got him in trouble. <laughs> that got him in trouble. He used to go out flying when he was at, at uh, Rockwell Field with a, with a buddy, uh, Jim McCulloch, and Gramps would get out on the wing and do those gymnastic things we talked about that he did in, uh, in Nome. He sat between the struts on between the wheels and the plane landed with him between the wheels. Uh, John was not happy. It was really kind of a no-no even in those days. And what neither of them knew was Cecil B. DeMille, the filmmaker, the filmmaker was right? at yeah. the field filming that day. And he was friends with Colonel Burwell, who was Granddad's commanding officer. And he was showing the rushes in Burwell's office. And... Uh, Burwell sees this airplane land with somebody sitting between the wings and he jumps up and he opens his office door and he goes, ground Doolittle. And DeMille goes, how do you know it's Doolittle? And Burwell says, nobody else is that stupid. <laughs> <laughs> so now you got a guy that uh, has got his PhD. He's a little bit of a daredevil, obviously. He starts in racing, you know, and wins a couple of uh, key races that uh, set speed records, you know, out of Mitchell Field and... Uh, where he was based at the time. And then he gets into this business about, you know, the blind takeoff and landing. You know, it's hard for a lot of us now to realize how difficult it was at that time to be able to fly, into, fly in weather at night and things like that. But he was the one that came up with the psychophysiological limitations and understanding. You know, people used to say, trust the seat of your pants, but they learned quickly that that can get you in a lot of trouble. And, and by putting instruments in it, he flew that first airplane with 15 minutes, so, you know, and with gyroscopic uh, new instruments that are developed by, you know, some amazing people uh, that worked hard on that. And, uh, you know, from a lot of the Guggenheim uh, fund that was promoting this, but, you know, 15 minute flight. Now, when I, you know, a lot of us who are pilots fly, we fly with these, you know, glasses that kind of keep you from looking over the, in the canopy so you can't see out, you know, but he actually had a cover over him 
you know, for 15 minutes on takeoff and landing. So tell, tell us a little bit about well, that. Well, you know, the thing about the, the first blind fight, I asked him as a kid, you know, when you got older, you began to realize that, you know, he was more than just Gramps. And I asked him what he thought his greatest uh, contribution was. And he said, blind flight, hands down. Um, he was asked to participate in the full flight laboratory, which was uh, financed by Guggenheim. And now you can feel for my grandmother here because a lot of her ta tablecloths were sacrificed over the years because he and, and Elmer Sperry were sitting in the kitchen of, of their place, of, of you know, my grandparents' place, drawing out these instruments and what they thought they should do and would do. But it was based on, on those studies that we can fly today in, in, in weather because the hardest problem for a pilot back in, in the 20s and 30s was the fact that if you couldn't see the ground, you, you couldn't safely uh, be assured you'd, you'd make it. Uh, he embarrassed himself very badly when he was uh, a young lieutenant hmm. and uh, attempted a, a cross-country flight and actually broke the plane. And he never, ever attempted any record without making sure he could do it after that. Well, it was a great accomplishment, especially what benefited us after. And he had a safety pilot, Kelsey, and he, I understand yeah. he kept his hands up high so the all the people who were filming this 15-minute flight could see that he wasn't controlling the airplane. It was all done by General Doolittle. That's great. Well, now, before we get into World War II, tell us a little bit about the Shell Company. You know, he uh, resigned his, uh, you know, uh, commission uh, for the regular uh, uh, corps in 1930 and then went to work for Shell, but he was still in the reserves, uh, and he, so he never cut his ties with the um, Army Air Corps and Single Corps. So tell us a little bit about what he did there. That was pretty significant, what he did for the when, Shell company. When you think about it, the aviators who stayed in the service between World War One and World War Two had one job. That job was to keep aviation in front of the public eye so that, that it could be funded so that we could have air power, uh, which at that point in time was basically part of the Army, uh, some part of the Navy. So his job was, was to make it, I mean, he had, he had to make aviation look fun. It was really tough. Now, he left the Army Air Corps in 1930. At that point in time, he was supporting my grandmother, my father and my uncle, he was supporting his mother who was living with them and was very ill. And he was supporting his in-laws um, who also were ill. So here he was still a lieutenant after all those years in the service uh, from 1917 uh, to, to 1930, he's still a, a lieutenant on a lieutenant's salary and he's offered a job from Shell Oil. He resigns from active duty, goes on to, um, um, the reserves skips the, the rank of captain. He goes into the reserves as a major and with Shell has basically the same same job. Uh, he's supposed to make aviation look fun. Now his first air race was as part of the Army Air Corps or you know, this actually predates the Air Force. So at the Army Air Corps, uh, he won the Schneider Trophy, which was an international air race. His other big air races were done as a pilot for Shell. And now for a quick announcement about membership at Wings. If you enjoy listening and want to support Behind the Wings in our mission, let me tell you how. 
Support Wing's mission by becoming a member for awesome perks like free admission to both locations and free access to other cultural institutions around the world. Join a great community of aerospace fanatics and lifelong learners. Use the code SEASON1 for a 20% discount. Offer valid for new members through the end of October 2022. To learn more, visit wingsmuseum.org slash membership. And now, back to the show. As I mentioned, the air races, he won the Schneider, the Bendix, and Thompson. When he stopped racing, he stopped after the Thompson, Thompson Trophy because um, the press kept a, a camera on my grandmother. They kept one on my dad, and they kept one on my uncle. Uh, feeling that, you know, that he was flying the GB in that one, which was, um, I'm not even sure you could call it an airplane. It was an engine with tiny little stubs on the side. And it was very, very unstable, and they expected him to crash and burn. His comment when he left racing, uh, at least closed circuit racing, because he did still do cross country, was the fact that he'd done as much as he could for air racing. He felt that air racing had done as much as it could for the development of aviation. Uh, much of his interest in aviation, and you saw that from the blind flight, you saw that from the development of, of um, and fuel, you saw it from uh, learning how to, you know, the pitch on the propellers and, and actually advising companies on, on the development of aviation. His, his real interest was making flight not just safe, but more powerful. And he spent a lot of time in the design rooms in all of the different companies. We get to uh, World War II and uh, at at this point, at the attack at Pearl Harbor, he's still he's still not on active, right? He's still in his reserve role. Actually, he went to Europe. I believe it was 1938. Uh, Ernst Dett was a particularly close friend of his. Ernst was a, an incredible uh, pilot, airshow pilot, and on his previous trips, he would visit the aviation factories, the the airplane factories all over Europe. When he went in 1938. He was no longer welcome in in the factories. Um, Ernst was, he jeopardized Ernst's safety as an American pilot. Uh, he came home from Europe, went directly to, to Hap Arnold's office and explained to Hap that there was no way we would be able to avoid being drawn into the war and offered to go back in uniform. Hap said, I can't take you until July. So July of, of 1939, he was back in uniform and his job was to force a marriage between automotive and aviation industries. So he was uh, basically out at, at Willow Run, uh, helping to put together the Ford factory out there. How, how was that relationship with Hap Arnold? How were the two of them close, you know, we share secrets, friends, were they, what was They had tremendous respect for each other. Hap was out at Rockwell Field when Granddad first went into the service. Um, they went beyond, especially after he left and went into the reserves, they became close personal friends. When Arnold invited him or, or assigned him to the, the raid on Tokyo, um, he assigned him to that because of his ability as a scientist, as much as his ability as a pilot. And also the fact that he was a great team builder, you know, 
getting those 16 B-25 crews together, trained them, and ready to go on to the attack on Tokyo. 80-plus uh, um, members uh, and 16 airplanes, five crew members each one, and what an amazing accomplishment. So maybe insights there, John. The thing about my granddad, and I think one of the things that made him uh, an exceptional leader, because I do believe he was an exceptional leader, was the fact that he believed in the team. Um, he believed in his people. He believed that if you, um, you found good people, you trusted them, and you stayed out of their way. Um, when it came to the actual Medal of Honor, he was uh, pretty adamant that the medal should be given to someone who directly risked their lives for someone else. So he had actually quite an argument with Arnold, not as much with Marshall. Uh, Marshall really outranked him, so he didn't, he didn't push back against Marshall too much. But he explained to them that he felt giving the, the medal for the raid cheapened it. And of course, they outranked him, so he was given the Medal of Honor. When he accepted it from Roosevelt, he accepted it on behalf of every single one of his raiders because he believed very strongly that every single one of them took the exact same risk he did and that they deserved it as much as he did. Um, he also, when he left the room, uh, turned to General Arnold and said, I will spend the rest of my life trying to earn this. I think it's important to note, um, back to the, to the raid specifically, didn't go exactly as it had been planned. I mean, I, I think that's the case with, you know, most of the time when we're at war, uh, many of the plans and the, the things we draw up don't, uh, you know, we get close. They don't necessarily always come exactly like we planned. That was the case with the raid, right? There was there were some things that that ended up being uh, handled a little differently than they anticipated. There, there were a couple hiccups. Uh, the first one occurred, you know, again, Granddad was a scientist. So when they prepared the airplanes at Eglin, they stripped them down to minimum weight and they set the carburetors to run as clean as possible. When they got to McClellan, some of the mechanics messed with the planes, even though they were told not to. That was the first kind of hiccup because one of the planes, the, the one flown by Ski York, ended up running too rich. And the story is that they could never, they, they're the ones that landed in, in Russia, that they could never have made it uh, to China. The other big, um, big problem that they ran into on the raid was they were spotted 250 miles further off the coast of, of Japan than, than planned. Now, the, the original plan was if they were spotted, they had three alternatives. The first was if they were in reach of friendly land, the airplanes would take off, fly to friendly land and, and land, and the, the Navy would bring up the fighters protect, to protect the fleet. Remember, this is barely four months after Pearl Harbor. And, and the Pacific fleet has been decimated. The second plan was if they were too far from Japan to strike safely, but too far from land to, uh, to take the planes off, they would push those bombers off into the ocean and then again bring up the fighters to protect the fleet. When they were spotted and the Nashville sank the, the picket ship, the, the decision to take off was jointly made between the Army and, and the Air Corps. And they knew that their chances of hitting land 
were, were jeopardized. The, the mission itself was really well planned and they knew, they knew that they could do it, but they needed, they needed that, you know, they needed the fuel to, to make it there. That was the big, biggest hip, hiccup. All of the planes were lost. Um, every single plane, plane made at least the coast of, of China, with the exception of the one that landed in Russia. The others made it inland far enough to uh, either ditch or bail. Yeah, it was amazing uh, when you think about the the guts that it would have been the hard weather that they did, but they didn't make the strike. It was a big morale booster for the uh, for the country and being able to move on there. But uh, he he did lose seven people on that uh, on that strike out of the eighty, and uh, four were you know uh, lost uh, because they were captured and killed, and three uh, because of crash problems as they went forward. I know that that eight at him, but uh, what an amazing story that that was part for us. Let's move on a little bit to the uh, World War II era uh, further on. You know, he was promoted. He was lieutenant colonel when he did the raid, and uh, then they promoted him to brigadier general. That's a pretty good leap there. And, uh, yeah, most of us would have liked that. And uh, But he went on to um, command, you know, the 12th Air Force, the 15th Air Force, and then the 8th Air Force. The 12th was in Africa. The 15th was in the Mediterranean. The 8th was in uh, over Europe. Uh, but, you know, one of the things that he's famous for was two major decisions. You know, being a commander is tough, and especially during wartime. But he made two major decisions. I'd like to get your insight on those, John. Uh, one was to um, basically increase the mission for the bombers from 25 to 30, and that was a big, unpopular decision, but needed. And the other one was when he allowed the fighters to uh, remove themselves from escorting the, the bombers and you know, move forward and be able to do their thing. And, and it was significant to the war, as we find out later. So maybe some insights on that. When Gramps first took over the 8th Air Force, he would strap his his parachute on his back and show up at one of the, the fields and he would ride in one of the, the bombers, usually uh, one of the tail end bombers. He would never take a pilot seat, didn't believe you could do that, but he often gave somebody else the, the day off. He did it so that he could understand how the crews were working, what they were up against. And then once he was briefed in ultra, uh, he wasn't allowed to do that anymore. In fact, the letters to my grandmother, you could, you could tell it was with anguish that he would wait for the heavies to come home and, and see how they had fared. When he rode with them, he discovered that after about 20 missions, the crews were really good. And so he jumped the number to first 25 to, fit, to 30 and then to 35. And what happened was more of the boys were coming home and more of the boys were bringing, you know, the, the airplanes home. So it, it proved that the skill that they gained was, was a big factor. Now, when it came to um, releasing the fighters, it's kind of a funny story. He showed up at, at 8th Air Force Fighter Headquarters and there was a sign that said the job of the Air Force uh, fighter is to protect the bomber. He said, take that sign down. He said, the, the job of the Air Force fighter is to take out the Luftwaffe. And that was the, the key thing. If you talk to Bud Anderson, who was a triple ace from, from uh, the 8th Air Force, he will tell you that decision and that little airplane, the Mustang, which could fly because of the high, 100 octane fuel, uh, ended the war. Interesting. A compelling uh, contribution to the legacy of his uh 
of his life. So now we're kind of toward the end of World War II. Um, he gets promoted to be a lieutenant general, three-star general, and uh, goes into um, the next phase of his life. Uh, he spent, what, 48 years after retirement, you know, from the military, because he retired in 1959, uh, to be able to do some other amazing things. So can you give us a sense of uh, a little bit about what his life was like after World War II? You know, he never stopped working. He, he was on presidential boards from every president, from Truman through Kennedy. He was on many, many boards that studied aviation safety. He was very involved in, in the space race and in supporting, uh, in supporting space. A lot of times when aircraft is declassified, you'll find his thumbprints, at least in, in advisory position on those on those aircraft. He was very involved with TRW. He was involved with aerospace. You know, he never sat still. He gave as much as he could for as long as he could. That should be all of our legacies, right? That we gave as much as we could as long as we could. I, I've got just one more question for you, John, as we're, we're close to wrapping up here. And I'm just, I, I'm curious uh, more about the, the personal side of, of General Doolittle. Is there a, a favorite family story? You know, when the gang gets together and you start sharing tales of granddad, is there something that kind of brings a smile to all of you? I spent a lot of time with both of my grandparents and I, I adored my grandfather, but I worship my grandmother. I, I mean, I will never tell you that Gramps wouldn't have done what he did without her, but she sure as heck made it a lot easier for him to do it. You know, he had this philosophy of life that we are all put on this earth to make the world a better place than we found it. And it wasn't something he just said. It was what he lived. And I think that's his legacy, you know, that he left the world a better place than he found it. Well, we certainly wouldn't be mentioning the 75th anniversary of the Air Force without him. President Bush gave him the uh, Presidential Medal of Freedom. So Gramps is really the only person to have ever received the Medal of Honor and the Medal of Freedom. And rightfully so, I would say. Well, I think we have told a heck of a story here today. The reason I do lectures, the reason I agree to, to podcasts is to make sure that everyone out there knows that each story is a thread in the fact that makes this country great. And each story is equally important. Granddad's makes a springboard for other people to build but he, he would certainly tell you every story counts. And uh, besides being a uh, lecturer and uh, head of the Air Force Historical Foundation, she's just a well-renowned author. You know, just doing my job, stories of service from World War II, as well as this, uh, all the stuff that she's written about her grandfather. So, John, thank you very much for this. This has been an incredible event and will go a long way in helping us celebrate the 75th anniversary of the United States Air Force. Thank you, guys. Can't say it enough. Thank you, Jonna Doolittle, for joining us. That was really, really cool. Uh, you know, I just loved getting to know the family side of Jimmy Doolittle, that personal side, right? So many of us that were in the military or grew up as uh, military historians, fans of the military, we we concentrate on that service side and the, the general and all those accomplishments because that's what's important. But it's good to get to know that side of the man as well. And I, I appreciated that. John, what were your takeaways? Well, as we mentioned, uh, Donna is the president of the Air Force Historical Foundation. 
a long time, you know, dedicated organization to keeping the history of the United States Air Force alive in people's minds. And, but her insights on her grandfather, she really got to know him, not only as a grandfather, not only as a member of the family, but a historical figure. So those insights that she provided to us, I think are absolutely unique and made this one of the most exciting episodes that we've been able to do. Don't forget, we have a special offer just for our podcast listeners. Use the code SEASON1 for 20% off your Wings Over the Rockies membership. And that's going to do it, folks. Thanks for listening to Behind the Wings. And be sure to visit www.wingsmuseum.org to join the conversation and access the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode of Behind the Wings. In the meantime, head over to iTunes or wherever you listen to subscribe and leave a review. It helps us a lot. It really does. And we certainly appreciate it. We'll see you next time, all right? Right here on Behind the Wings.